and uh, today we're again we're continuing our our time today with the ministry of reconciliation. That's the title of our our sermon this morning: the ministry of reconciliation. I'll never forget the moment I met my roommate in seminary. I was sitting in my dorm room, and he walked in. He stood six foot four, a hundred and seventy pounds, and he was dressed entirely in black. He had a black hat on, a black trench coat, a black shirt, black belt, black pants, black gloves, black socks, black shoes. He was a man dressed in black. And he reminded me of a tall Johnny Cash. I just looked at him and he was a little bit intimidated because he had this long black trench coat on. And I didn't know him and I didn't know what he had underneath that trench coat. He kind of looked like one of those mass murderers from those old cowboy movies. You remember those guys? Or one of those villains from the Matrix movie. So he walks in with his black coat, straw, long trench coat on. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what he had underneath there. So I just posted him right there. And I said, who are you? He said, I'm your roommate. I said, my roommate? He said, yep. And he walked right in the room. And as he walked in, he threw off that big black trench coat. And I was thanking God that all he had underneath that coat was himself. And that was good. Now, his bed sat up against the wall. And the next move he made was really unusual, bizarre. He looked over at his bed. He said, is that mine? I said, yeah. He walked over and he stood straight up on his bed, feet first. Then he dropped himself down on the mattress And then he lifted his legs up the wall, put a pillow underneath his head, and never said another word to me. Now, isn't that a little crazy? Huh? A little bizarre? I mean, I just started praying right then. God, who is this guy? Save me from this man. But you know what? A wonderful thing happened. Not too long after that, we really connected. We really did. And we became friends, and we did everything together. We went to lunch and dinner We went and worked out. We studied with one another. We did everything. But he was weird. He really was. He was really different. Matter of fact, the other relationships that I had in seminary, the other folks that I knew, they would come to me on the side and say, Ed, how do you hang around with this guy? This guy's bizarre. I said, because he's my friend. He's my roommate. I even had to sacrifice some relationships in seminary. Can you believe it? Just to hang out with him. But I did. And we had a great time for about a year. And then I started dating this young lady in seminary. It wasn't Tammy yet. But I was dating her. And in order to date somebody, you have to spend time with that person. And the time that I was spending with Steve, now I was spending with this young lady. And now our relationship became strained. And I remember coming home at night and coming into the dorm room. And there would be my roommate Steve and myself. And we'd sit. And he just started nitpicking at me. I mean, for a whole month, he started saying things like this. Ed, have you been borrowing my toothbrush? Have you been borrowing my toothpaste the next day? Have you been using my towel? And this went on and on and on for a month. But then finally, he said something and accused me of something that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I kid you not. He looked at me and he said, have you been wearing my underwear? Right then, I I lost it. I lost it right there. And from that moment on, it was like an imaginary line was drawn in the room, in our dorm room. And I lived on one side, and he lived on the other, and we just didn't talk with one another. We'd hardly talked. 
And then one night, I was sleeping up on the top, top of a bunk. He always slept on the bottom. I couldn't sleep. And he was sound asleep. And I was listening to him just breathe. And his breathing annoyed me. And I realized I had allowed, or we both had allowed, the sun to go down on our anger too many nights. And now we were no longer friends. We'd become enemies. We had become enemies. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You know, you were a friend with somebody and now you're no longer a friend. And when you walk into the room and you see them, it's like a knot begins to grow right in the pit of your stomach. And when you see them, you want to go the opposite direction. If that's you this morning, this message is really tailored for you, really here to help you so that you can reconcile with that brother or sister. But I believe this message is for all of us because all of us, one time or another, have had to be, we were angry with somebody. And we're going to learn from Jesus today of how to reconcile, how to come at peace and be at peace with one another. It's found, our passage again is found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and through 25. And this particular passage we're going to study is smack in the middle of a very famous sermon. A sermon that we know is a sermon on the mount. And Jesus says, Here in our passage, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said. And then he follows up that statement in verse 22, and he says, but I say. Now let me read that again. Jesus is saying in verse 21, you have heard that it was said. And let me go on and read that whole thing for us. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, but anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. But right there in verse 21, he says, you have heard that it was said. Verse 22, but I say. What's Jesus doing here? Is he correcting the Old Testament? Is he contradicting it? Is he changing it? Is he throwing out the Old Testament here and bringing something in new? Not at all. No, not at all. But what he is doing is that he is attacking the teachings of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, they taught about a system more than they taught about Scripture. They developed this system of do's and don'ts. And they basically taught the people of that day, if you do these do's and don'ts, then you're okay with God. But if you don't do what we're telling you inside this system, then you're not okay with God. In other words, folks, they were about teaching what people thought about the scriptures, but they weren't teaching the scriptures. They were teaching a system, not the scriptures themselves. So Jesus is taking them on, and he's attacking their teaching. Not the Old Testament, but what they had to say about the word of God like commentaries that you pick up today. He's going after them. And let's see how Jesus goes after the Pharisees in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I imagine when Jesus began to talk about the commandment concerning murder, the Pharisees and those they taught 
might have just checked out in their minds. And why? Because they would have sat there and thought to themselves, well, I go through the checklist, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm okay. I'm okay with God. I haven't murdered anybody. This isn't applied to me. You know, that kind of thinking isn't dead. It's very much alive today. You know, I've been in ministry for over 27 years, and if I've heard this statement once, I've heard it a thousand times. People will come to me and they'll say, Pastor Ed, I'm not that bad of a guy. I'm not that bad of a girl. I might have done some bad things, but I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm okay with God, right? I'm okay. Well, that would have been the kind of thinking that the audience had that day when Jesus was speaking to them about the commandment about murder. And if he would have stopped right there, they would have applauded him, they would have said, amen, that's right, Jesus, you preach it, because anybody who murders, they should be judged. But he didn't stop there. He went on in verse 22, and it says this. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I say in verse 22, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother, Jesus is saying that being angry with your brother is just as serious as murdering him. Now right then, all the amening and the clapping and the chit-chat would have been stone-cold silent. You would have been able to hear a pin drop because the people of that day would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And he was, sa- he was saying to them, if you have been angry with your brother, God will judge you as he would judge a murderer. Wow. Let me go back and explain to you what the word judge means. I'm sorry, angry means. See, in that day, when they heard that word, they would have clearly understood what Jesus was saying. Let me unpack that word for us, and let me help you understand, first of all, what he is not saying, and then let me help you understand what he is saying. First of all, he's not saying anything about being angry, referring to a just or a righteous anger. He's not talking about that at all. Remember when Jesus walked into the temple and the tax collectors were defrauding worship and they were selling their goods in order to make money on the backs of religion? And Jesus walks in and he flips over the tables and he tells all those boys to get out of his father's house. The Bible refers to that kind of anger that Jesus displayed that day as a righteous or just anger. Jesus is not referring to this at all. So what is he saying? What he's saying is this. The word for anger used here describes a long, intentional, sustained grudge or resentment. It's when somebody holds on to an anger for a long, long, long time where they nurture it where they rewind the tape over and over again and remind themselves of what that person had done or what that person had said that had hurt them. So they rewind it over and over again and they allow their anger to root down deep into their spirit or their soul and it's no longer anger, 
it's now become a grudge. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying this, if you have had a grudge towards your brother, then you will be judged just like a murderer. Jesus goes on and says in verse 22, again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What Jesus is describing here is the first visible sign of a grudge. And where is that sign found? In one's speech. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. Jesus says, For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your words reveal what's in your heart. So when you speak to someone, What's happening when you're using those words, they are an overflow of what's going on in your heart and what you say spills out to them. Now the question is, when you look at that verse, what do those three words mean? What does it mean about when when he uses the word brother, raka, and fool? Let's define those for us because it'll help us understand what Jesus is doing here. First of all, when he's talking about a brother, he's referring to, yes, a physical brother, a spiritual brother and sister in Christ, but he's also talking about those who are in the community, the Jewish community in which they lived. And there he's saying that means that any person that you come across, like in your path, anybody crosses your path, anybody who's acquaintance in the church or outside of the church, That's your brother. Basically, he's saying this. Anybody created in the image of God in your community, that's your brother. Who's that? Everybody. So he's saying, any relationship you have, what I'm saying to you, it applies. And then he goes on and he uses two unique words. He points them out. Let's define those for a moment. The word raka means literally brainless, vain, empty, and worthless. The Jews use this word to show contempt. The root word of this word comes from the word to spit. In other words, the most demeaning thing that you can do to someone is spit in their face. And when you use the word raka, what you were doing verbally is that you were spitting in their face. That's what that means. The third word that we need to understand is fool. Here in this passage, it really really, literally means stupid, godless, shameless. The Jewish people use this word to describe someone rejected by God and without hope of salvation, one who's predestined to damnation. The problem is when they use this word, they replace God with themselves as if they had the authority and the power to condemn somebody to hell. Today, we we do the same thing. A lot of people, when they're mad and angry or if they want to retaliate upon somebody, they'll say, oh, I wish you would go to, and they're not talking about heaven. And when somebody uses that phrase, that's the same thing they're doing right here. And basically what Jesus is doing here in verse 22, using these words and describing this for us, is to help us understand that there are many ways to murder somebody. He's saying you can murder somebody physically with a weapon, but you also can murder somebody emotionally and spiritually and intellectually with words. So you can kill with a weapon or you can, kill, or you can murder with words. 
You see, what we need to understand is that each and every one of us is created in the image of God. That's what makes us distinctively different than all of creation. That's what sets us apart from the birds and the animals and even the angels is because you and I are created in the image of God. And that means that we have worth and value and purpose and meaning and potential. And what Jesus is saying is when anybody tries to destroy your potential, your purpose, your value, your meaning, your worth, in any way, physically, through weapons, or through words, they're murdering you in the sight of God. You see, you can murder somebody with a weapon physically and they're dead, but you can also use words and people who have been murdered by other people with their words, they're like the walking dead, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. I've met them. So Jesus is saying, be very careful about the words you use, especially when you're angry. Parents, you need to be very, very careful what you say to your children when you're angry. Remember, parents, you have the power to bless or curse your children. Be very, very careful with the words you use towards your children when you're angry. Husbands and wives, we need to be very, very careful with the words that we use when we're upset with one another. I've been married to my wife, Tammy, for 27 years, and there have been times I've said things that I wish I would have never said. I wish I could have rewound the tape and never said them, but I did. But I thank God for 27 years when I've gone to my wife and I've said, I'm sorry for what I've said to you. She's forgiven me every time. Husbands and wives, we need to work really, really hard at speaking words of kindness to one another and stay away from saying words that are abusive. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be very careful the words we say when we describe one another when we're angry. I've sat with men and women who've actually abandoned the faith because what another brother or sister have said to them when they were angry. We need to be very careful. The words we use when we're angry. Jesus is clearly saying to us here, that murder is more than just a physical act. Murder can be done emotionally through words. You've heard that old saying, sticks and stones may break your bones, but names will never hurt you. We know that's a lie. Because we know that after the wounds the sticks have brought to our lives and those wounds have been healed, the wounds from words emotionally, sometimes with us or to us, are never healed. But you know what I'm so thankful for? Is that God doesn't leave us right here. Because if he did, all of us would be condemned, including me. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't leave us there. He goes on in verse 23 and 25, and he gives us two pictures. And inside these pictures are five steps that we can take when we hurt somebody and how we can reconcile with one another. 
But before we look at those five steps, let's look at those two pictures he draws in verse 23 through 25. Verse 23 says this. This is a picture of worship. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The second picture comes right out of the workplace in verse 25. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Jesus here is using these two pictures to say this to us. He's saying it doesn't matter who you're with, where you're at, or what you are doing. Whether you are in the sacred place or in a secular place. Whether you're with Christians or non-Christians. If you hurt somebody, reconcile with them. Reconcile. And then he tells us five steps, if we're willing to be obedient, what we can do to reconcile with our brother and sister. Here's the five steps. Number one, remember. Two, leave. Three, go. Four, be reconciled. And number five, settle matters quickly. Let's look, first of all, at the first word there called remember. Remembering is the first step in reconciliation. It's found in verse 23. It's God's way of prompting us to be a peacemaker. As I've been preaching today, if you've been reminded of somebody that has hurt you, or you have hurt them. Know that it is not a coincidence. It's not coincidental that you have re- been reminded of that person or people. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit has prompted you and reminded you, you have remembered. So what's the second step? The second step is that we are to leave. Now remember, he's drawing a picture of worship here. And he's saying if you're giving an offering to, to God and you remember about somebody who's hurt you or you've hurt them, he says leave that gift, that offering, and you go and you find that person you have a problem with and you make peace with them. And then after you've done that, then you come back and you continue to worship. You offered the offering to me. Why is Jesus teaching us that? Because that's what the Bible teaches. It teaches this. It says if you say that you love me who you can't see, but you hate your brother who you can see, you don't love me. That's why in the Bible it says, I'm not looking for your sacrifice, I'm looking for obedience. He's saying when you know that you have something with a brother, the Bible makes it very clear there's two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and might, and then love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't love God if you don't love each other. And you can't love each other without first loving God. He's saying, so if you have something against a brother, you have something against me. So don't leave your offering. I mean, don't give me your offering. Go and make it right, then come back. And then now you will truly worship me. Not with sacrifice, but with obedience. So first you go, first you You remember, then you leave, and then you go. That word go is a personal commandment. There in the passage, in verse 24, go means a personal commandment. It's not a suggestion or an option. It's a commandment to all of us who believe. We are to go. The idea there is that a lot of us, when people hurt us, 
We sit and wait for them to come back and apologize. But that's not what Jesus is teaching here or over in Matthew 18 at all. Listen, believers, listen to me. A lot of people do not understand this. This is what the Bible teaches, so make sure you understand here now. Listen up. The Bible makes it very clear right here and over in Matthew 18 that if you have a problem with a brother or a bro- you, you've hurt them or they've hurt you, it doesn't matter who's at fault, you are to go and reconcile. That's what it means. You go. The word there is a verb, and it's talking about doing everything possible with intense effort, move heaven and earth to go and reconcile with that person. So, so far, remember, leave, go, and now be reconciled. In verse 20, 24, it says, be reconciled. What's he mean there? It means in order for you to really experience the benefit of forgiveness, then you got to be willing to forgive and be forgiven. And when you are willing to forgive and be forgiven, you'll experience all of what God is, is, has available to you in the area of forgiveness. Those who give freely or forgive freely, they are freely forgiven. And there's unbelievable benefits when we do the things that God is asking us to do. So he's telling us to go, but you know what? When we are really hurt and people really hurt us, and I know, folks, look right here, I know that there are some things that people have done to you and have done to me that were unjust, uncalled for. You didn't deserve it. I got it. I understand it. But all you got to do is look at Jesus. Did he deserve any of it? And he's saying to us, in order for you to really be reconciled, just as I have reconciled myself with you and you with me, be reconciled with one another. He's saying, when you finally come to that place that you're saying, I'm not going to hold on to this anger towards this brother anymore. See, sometimes we think to ourselves, if I hold on to this anger, somehow I'm punishing that person. That's not how it works spiritually. Because you're the one that becomes the hostage, not them. It's like, folks, when you hold back a grudge, when you hold back forgiveness from somebody, you're the one that gets hurt, not that other person. And it's as crazy as setting yourself on fire in hopes that the smoke somehow bothers the one you're mad at. That just doesn't work. It's that crazy. Spiritually, it does not work. And you can sit there and you can say to yourself, oh man, I don't, I'm not going to put up with this. And you begin to hurl or throw mud at each other. Remember, when you're throwing mud, you're losing ground. And they're gaining ground. None of it works. None of that stuff you see on television, none of that stuff you're hearing on the radio, none of it works. The only thing that works is when you and I take the responsibility that God has given to us, commanded us to go and to be reconciled with our brothers and sisters, no matter who's right or wrong, we take the initiative, we go, and we ask for forgiveness. But let me say this to you. It takes two to reconcile. You can't force reconciliation. This is what it says in Romans. Romans chapter 12 it says this, it says twelve eighteen. if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There's a disclaimer right there. As far as it depends upon you. Folks, sometimes you'll go and you'll do everything you can to reconcile with that person and the other person just doesn't want to reconcile. What do you do? You're, here it is. You're not responsible for their actions. You're only responsible for yours. And in that moment, God sets you free. You're released. 
All you got to do is go over and say, I'm sorry for what I've said. I, I really mean it. I, I don't want to be at odds with you anymore. Please forgive me. Or you've hurt me. You've done these things to me. And I'm asking you right now, you might not know it, but you really hurt me. But I want you to know that you're already forgiven. You say those things and they say, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm still mad at you. You're free. God will deal with them. So, so far we've learned, remember, leave, go, be reconciled. But now, lastly, settle matters quickly. You know, when I'm counseling young couples, I always tell them before they get married, I say, hear me now. I say to them, listen, no one ever, no, never ever sleeps on the couch. And the reason I make that statement is because this is what it says in the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I tell young couples, I'll say to them, if you're mad at one another, if you're angry, you're having an argument, you resolve it as quickly as you can before the sun goes down. And if you can't, you stay up all night long until you resolve it, until you finally can kiss each other goodnight. Hear me. If you will practice that one principle I'm telling you right now, your marriage has a great chance of lasting a lifetime. Just practicing that one principle. So we've heard, we've understood, remember, leave, go, be reconciled, settle matters quickly. Let me now take you back to my story with Steve. I told you I was laying up in the top bunk at night, couldn't sleep, listening to my friend or my enemy breathe. And I realized that I allowed the sun to go down on my anger too many nights, and Steve and I were no longer friends, we were enemies. I went to sleep that night, finally, and the next morning when I woke up, Steve was already gone. So I got out of bed, got dressed, and I was looking out the window in our dorm room, and I began to pray. And I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. Please, Jesus. Show me, tell me what the problem is between Steve and I, and I will deal with it. And right then I turned around and I looked across our, our room, and there on the wall across from me was a mirror and what I saw was my image and I tell you the truth in that moment Jesus gave me a verse and the verse was why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a two by four in your own and right after that verse these thoughts followed Ed did I not love you Hear me. Did I not love you when I didn't feel like it? Did I not forgive you when you didn't deserve it? It doesn't matter who's at fault. Reconcile. I dropped down on my knees right there in the room. And I just began to repent. And I asked Jesus Christ to forgive me. And then I told Jesus, I said, Jesus, please help me to connect back with Steve. And I'm telling you the truth. By the time I was getting up off my knees, Steve walked right in the room. I walked right over to Steve and I said, Steve, please forgive me. And Steve said, no, Ed, I came back into the room today because God had been prompting me and talking to me. I'm in here to tell you, forgive me. We went over to the bedside, his bedside, knelt down on our knees and we just melted right there. We prayed. We wept. We asked God to forgive us. We embraced one another. And we reconciled with one another. 
Afterwards, I looked at him and I said, Steve, what happened to us? How did we get to this situation? How did this happen? Steve said to me, Ed, you know that I'm a missionary's kid. And I've bounced around the world, all around the world. And I've gone from one boarding school to another boarding school. And you know I'm weird. I'm different. And when I went to those schools, I was always the brunt of everybody's jokes. I couldn't do the things that they wanted me to do, the teachers. And they always used me as an example of what not to do. And then I'd get mad and I'd get angry. And they disciplined me by throwing me in these closets. And I'd sit there in the dark in the closet. And I'd begin to cry out to God, God, does anybody love me? And I began to think that maybe you, that God didn't love me. And he said, and I really believe that, that maybe even God did not believe me until I met you, Ed. And you accepted me. Just the way that I am. And I'm not bothered. I'm not jealous that you have a girlfriend. I was just scared. Scared that I'd lose you as a friend. In my mind, I was praying. And I was thanking God. That, I, that God did not allow me to claim my rights, what I thought my rights were. But he caused me to look to my responsibility. And I was able to reconcile with my friend Steve, and I no longer was breaking my friend, who was already so broken. Let me ask you tonight, this day. Is there anybody that you've hurt? Has anybody hurt you? I'll say this to you. If you hold on to your anger, if you retaliate, you lose. If you're willing to be obedient to God and find the courage to go to that person and ask for forgiveness or forgive them and reconcile to them, you win and so does everybody else. I said this in the first service, and I say it to us here in the second. We've lost some people here at Christ Church. I come in and out a little bit, and I see that sometimes the numbers are dropping a little bit. If you have said something, or somebody has said something to you, and that's why they're not here, I'm not saying that that's why we're losing people. There's a number of reasons why we could be losing people. But if we're losing people because of something that you said or I said, we cannot allow the sun to go down this day without giving that person a call, doing whatever whatever we need to do to make it right. We love you here. Barry and I as pastors, we love you. And we have always been proud of you in a holy pride. But don't you let pride keep you from doing what you know is right. Do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us to find the courage to pick up that phone or go to that person until we make it right.
And some of these people who have hurt us, they've been unjust. And they've done some really wicked things to us. But Lord Jesus, we do not want to hold a grudge and we don't want this anger to be in us any longer. We ask to today that it will end it today and we will be free. Do it for your glory and your honor. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.